We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 1 this morning. Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. And if you guys would take a moment and pray with me before we get started. Uh, Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now as we get ready to start a new book, new study. We pray that you would teach, we would listen, let your Holy Spirit lead, guide, and direct, and help us to take this, not only hear it, but to apply it in all we do and say. And we say thank you in your name. Amen. Starting the book of Proverbs here. I absolutely love the book of Proverbs. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I think I checked. I think it's been eight years since we've gone through the book of Proverbs. So it's been a little bit of time here. We make a lot of references, though, to the book of Proverbs because it's full of such amazing godly wisdom. You've heard me mention this before. The first person I heard say this was Billy Graham. I don't know who originated it, but Proverbs is a wonderful book for your devotions. 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, many days, have 31 days. You just read the chapter of the day that you're in. So today, August 5th, you would read Proverbs chapter 5. It's a great supplement to your devotions. Proverbs is full of just practical, daily, godly living. That's what we need. Practical, daily, godly living. There's not a lot of deep theology. There's not a lot of stuff about end times. It's just how do I go out and live the life? And so many of these Proverbs are self-explanatory once we get in here. I was talking to a Bible study group the other day, and we were talking about, I heard a teacher teach through Proverbs one time, and he would just read the proverb and say, oh, that's a good one. And then just read the next one and say, oh, that's another good one. Because they're so self-explanatory. But they're such great little nuggets. And the idea here is wisdom. That's the wisdom, is that we need is from God. Now, how I define wisdom in the book of Proverbs is this. Knowing God's way of doing something. That's wisdom. Now, wisdom according to the world is completely different. You may have a title after your name. You may have a lot of letters after your name. You may have a lot of college education, etc. According to the Bible, that does not make you wise. Wisdom is the wisdom of God. There may be people in this world that have no formal education, and they're the most godly wise people that have ever existed. So we're going to go with the definition of wisdom, of knowing God's way of doing things. And that's the goal of Proverbs, is that you walk out of these studies saying, okay, I know what God wants me to do. Not what I want to do. What does God want me to do? You're going to see repeated themes here. The idea of wisdom, that word is used 49 times in this book. Instruction, 23 times. Knowledge, 41 times. This book is a father writing to his sons. The phrase, my son, is mentioned 23 times. This idea of a dad sitting down with his boys saying, let me tell you how to live the life. Let me tell you what I've learned. You're also going to see the other side of this. The phrase simple is used 14 times. Simple is not good in this one. The idea of being simple-minded. Fool, or its variance, is used 78 times in this book, what it means to be foolish. You have to remember from a biblical standpoint, one of the worst things you could tell somebody is that you're a fool. So that word is used 78 times in this book. So this book is full of wisdom, instruction, and knowledge, practical, daily, godly living. Wisdom of knowing God's way of doing it. Let's go ahead and start and see what happens here. Verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. To the young men, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma. The words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Those first seven verses tell us everything we need to know. Did you see how many times the word wisdom, instruction, knowledge is used? We see the word fool. We see the word simple. It's all right there. That's what this book is about. Now, Proverbs tells us who wrote it. And you see that in verse 1. It's the Proverbs of Solomon. Now, Solomon didn't write all of the book of Proverbs. It's kind of like when you talk about um, the Psalms. A lot of times people say David wrote the Psalms. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. But he didn't write all the Psalms. Not everything in Proverbs is Solomon. We know from Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 10, he wrote a lot of these. Starting in chapter 25, it says that Hezekiah the king collected the Proverbs of Solomon. And then when you get to chapters 30 and 31, there's two other guys mentioned, Lemuel and Agur, that both wrote some of it. But Solomon wrote most of it. Why Solomon? Because Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. You don't need to turn there, but if you're a note taker, 1 Kings 4, 1 Kings 4, starting in 29, says this. And God gave Solomon wisdom, an exceedingly great understanding, and largest of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar trees of Lebanon, even to the hyssop of the springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This guy was a walking encyclopedia. And he just knew this stuff. And he has the wisdom also of the Lord. And so therefore, that's where these Proverbs have these godly nuggets to it. Now, that's what I love about this book. Once again, practical, daily, godly living. Wisdom. Knowing God's way of doing it. And what I also love about this book is it starts out so easy with just one verse, Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's our words, guys. We have wisdom, instruction, knowledge, and to despise it makes you a fool. There's very few times that we can take something and say, here's the absolute beginning we got the beginning right here. This is your initial groundwork right here. As it's found in verse 7, it's understanding you need to have the fear of the Lord. And when you have the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of knowledge. That's where it starts. So to start to have knowledge, to know how to live your life, all the big life decisions, where you're going to go to school, what your career is going to be, who you're going to marry, should I take this job, should I do this, to try to have that knowledge without the fear of the Lord is foolishness. So we have to understand what the fear of the Lord is. That is our foundation. And I tell you, you're not going to get it just today. This is a lifelong process. But I want you, through this study in the book of Proverbs, to really understand what it means to fear God. To really understand that. That when you walk out of this study here today, and I believe this study is really important, not by anything I'm going to say, but by just God's word, that you walk out of here chewing on what it means to really fear God. To fear God in your words, to fear God in your actions, to fear God in your finances, and to fear God in your decisions. To really get that. This idea of the fear of the Lord, I started making a list of all the verses of the fear of the Lord to prove how this is such a big deal. There's so many of them. It's all over Proverbs. It's all over Psalms. It's through the entire Bible. Go with me to Deuteronomy 6, please. Deuteronomy 6. Now, the problem is when you think of fear, you never think of fear in a good way. There's something you're afraid of. And it's not something you really want to be around. But yet the fear of God is a little different than that. I was trying to think of an analogy to describe the fear of God because we have this relationship with God. He's my father. 
In fact, the Bible says I can call him a Bob, which means daddy. There's such a closeness there of a toddler crawling up on his dad's knee. He's my brother. I can go and just talk to him like I would a brother. He's my friend. So he's my friend. He's my brother. He's my father. But he's also God. And I can remember when I first got saved, there was a brother in the Lord that taught me this. He says, don't forget when you're praying to God, you're not only praying to your father, you're praying to your friend, you're praying to your brother, but you're also praying to the creator of the universe that holds your very breath in his hands. Understanding that. So when I, you think of the fear of God, I don't want you to think of fear like you're scared of him. The words we would maybe use is reverence, awe, a holy respect for who he is. The best analogy I could think of was the idea of fire. Fire, and in the right setting, is amazing. It's warm, it's inviting, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so if you make a fire in the middle of winter in your fireplace, it warms you, the glow. We were just outside the other day and made a little fire outside. The sound, the crackling of the wood, you can cook on it. It brings heat, it brings use, you absolutely love it. Fire can burn our trash. It can make things disappear. It does so many different purposes. I'm not afraid of that. Fire in the middle of my living room floor, that scares me a little bit. That's a little bit of the fear of God. He is my father. I have a childlike faith. I can go to him. He is my brother. He is my friend. He's also God. And there is an awe of reverence and a respect for that. And that fire... It's important to understand that and to understand the analogy that it does bring light and warmth and glow and joy. But I also don't want to mess with it. Do you remember the first time you learned the dangers of fire? You see, we grow up now, we understand you don't put your hand in the fire. There's a respect for it. I can remember as a young kid, I was in charge of burning trash. And I absolutely loved burning trash. It was a wonderful thing. Our trash barrel was behind the... uh, near the field behind some trees, I could go back there and do whatever I wanted. They gave me things that burned. They gave me matches, and I was thrilled. I'd go back there and burn trash and have the time of my life. I can remember one time my mom asked me, saying, what takes so long for you to burn trash? So one time I was back there burning trash. I was fairly young, and my sister JC was back there as well, too, and I don't know if she remembers the story or not, but we have a garden near it, and we had some cucumber zucchinis or something like that in there, and so we were just throwing things in the fire. And just watching it burn and just it's just fascinating. So I started throwing these cucumbers, these zucchinis in, and they were green, and they started hissing and popping because they were green. And I remember JC yelled out, The fire's hurting them, save them. That's this we were we were probably about 19 or something at the time. <laughs> so the fire's hurting them, save them. So I stuck my hand in, pulled out. Now two things came out of that. Number one, I hate zucchinis and cucumbers. I don't want anything to do with them. Number two, I have a respect for fire. It hurts. There's reverence. I don't go near it. Now, that's a little bit with God. He is warm. He's inviting. He's joy. He's light. I want to sit near him, by him. I love it. I'm also not going to mess with him. And I think it was R.C. Sproul made this comment one time. He goes, too many Christians have become very flippant in their attitude towards God. They have lost the fear of God. And what happens here is this idea of the fear of God. I cannot stress this to you enough. It is the beginning of knowledge. That's where it starts. And this is an ongoing theme in Psalms and Proverbs. But I took you to Deuteronomy 6 because I want you to see this. Take a look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 1. 
Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. So here it is, guys. Here's your rules. Here's the commandments. Here's the laws. This is what you need to know as the brand new nation of Israel. And the first rule is verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God. That's the first rule. Fear him. Fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I've commanded you. You and your son and your grandson all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. When you fear God, you will obey God. Because there's a holy, all reverence, fear. Now we're going to keep building on this word fear, so please bear with me. I don't want you to walk away now and think, oh, he's just saying be scared of God. No, that's not what the word is saying. So we fear God, we obey God, and then we get to this. Look at this one, verse 5. Then Then I love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, and strength. God, Jesus said that's the most important commandment. And then I teach them, verse 7, to my kids. But it starts with understanding the fear of God. Stay in Deuteronomy. Go with me just ahead a little bit to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, that answers the question, what does God want of me? Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. That's what he says. That's what I want. Can you imagine that? That as a, as a parent, you would look at your child and you'd say, I want you guys to grow up in the fear of God. And that's one of the greatest compliments you can give somebody. Hey, what do you think of Fred? Oh, man, Fred fears God. That's a compliment that shows that there's an awe of reverence and respect for who God is. Yes, once again, I will repeat it. He is my dad. He is my brother. He is my friend. But he's also God. And so, therefore, there is a fear of God. So, verse 12, again, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So often, we work backwards on this. Kids, verse 13, just be obedient. Follow the moral code that God gave you. Okay, now I hope, verse 12, I hope you love him. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yep, do what God asks of you. And the last thing then is, oh, I hope you fear him. No, fear him first. When you fear him, you obey him. And when you fear him, you will love him. Now that sounds contradictory to us. But it's not in the Bible. We're going to keep building on this idea. Because the fear of God actually leads to a deeper love of God. Go please to Hebrews chapter 12. This is not just an Old Testament concept. Hebrews 12, please. As you're going to Hebrews chapter 12, I just want to remind you in Acts 9, when it talks about the early church, it says the early church walked in the fear of God. The early church walked in the fear of God. Can you imagine what it would be if churches today walked in the fear of God? We don't walk in the fear of God mostly as a church. We walk in the fear of our numbers decreasing. We walk in the fear of not being popular enough in the community. We walk in the fear of not being prestigious. What would happen if we just walked in the fear of God and just said, let's obey him, let's love him? Hebrews 12, verse 25. See then that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So basically, if God spoke from earth and there was consequences to rejecting him, imagine how many consequences are going to be with rejecting Jesus who came from heaven. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only earth, but also heaven. God shook the earth. If you've never read in times... He will start completely over again and melt the whole earth and bring a new heaven and a new earth. The fear of God. Verse 27, now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. As of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. God's going to shake it up and see what's left. Eternity in Jesus Christ is what's left. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now, just think about that. When it comes to your service to God, verse 28, do you ever stop and think, I'm serving him with fear? That's the fear of God. Because look at 29. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the God we serve. Once again, my brother, my friend, my dad. But also God that holds the very breath in my hands. I want us to reach a point where we fear God in our words, our actions, our finances, and our decisions. Where we stop and say, I want to take this through the filter of the fear of God. Because I want to make sure the decision's right and honorable in the Lord. Not what I think, not what I do. Because when I make a decision on my own, I'm basically saying, I don't really fear God. Because I have enough wisdom and intellect on my own. Even though Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And Jesus even says this even clearer. You don't need to turn there. Luke 12, Luke 12 verse 4. And I say to you, Christ speaking, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. That word for fear in the Greek is phobia, where we get the word phobia, a fear. There is a holy all reverence and respect for God and understanding who God is. When we do not have that fear of God, we become very complacent sometimes on our relationship with him. And yes, we get the whole love, grace, mercy. I'm not ignoring that. But we lose the reverence and awe for who God is. So now that we've laid this foundation that the fear of God is something that goes from the beginning to the end of the Bible. It's an Old Testament. It's a New Testament concept. It's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It's the beginning of obedience. It's the beginning of love. Now, let's talk about how the fear of God can actually lead to love. Can you go with me to Jonah, please? Jonah, chapter 1. I got two examples I want to show you of how the fear of God actually leads to a deeper loving relationship with them. I don't know what it was like for you growing up. You may have grew up with a father figure, a mother figure that you feared. And that fear did not lead to love. That fear led to trembling. That fear led to them coming home and not wanting to be around them. That fear actually led to a distance of a relationship rather than a relationship of love. Once again, if you are thinking about the fear of God in that type of atmosphere, you'll never be able to fully understand what it means to fear God and actually love him more. Because you're thinking of fear as in trembling. You're thinking of fear as in punishment. You're thinking of fear as in discipline. This is a holy all reverence for who God is. And so I fear him in my words, actions, finances, and decisions. Two examples of this. Jonah chapter 1. If you don't remember the story of Jonah, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. 
Jonah said, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go the complete opposite direction. Jonah gets on a boat, heads the opposite direction. God says, nope, Jonah, you're going to Nineveh. So he sends this huge storm to get Jonah's attention. As this storm is happening, the sailors on the boat realize this is a problem. Jonah says, the problem's me. So God's doing this to get me. And the sailors are like, well, what happened? I ran from God. So that's where we pick it up. Jonah 1 verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Verse 10, that word they're afraid, that's fear. That's trembling. That's scared. That's not awe. That's not reverence. That's not love. That's just scared. We're all going to die. So what happens next? What are we supposed to do? Jonah says in verse 12, throw me overboard. Verse 13, the guy says, we can't. Storm gets worse. So finally in verse 14, they say, oh, fine, we'll throw you overboard. And please, God, don't hurt us. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. Verse 10, trembling. Verse 16, all reverence, worship, and love. Verse 10, they were afraid. Verse 16, it's feared. But it's the same exact Hebrew word. See, when you see the storm and you're not right with God, you're trembling. You're fearful of God. Verse 16, the storm, though, led them to an awe of reverence and a respect of God. And so they feared the Lord now in worship. They feared the Lord now in vows. And before you think, well, they feared the Lord because he was going to kill them. No. Verse 15, the sea ceased from its raging. If the sea was still raging and the guys were fearing God out of love, that's a forced love. Hey, love me or I'll kill you. Okay, I love you. Love me, I will make your life completely, utterly miserable. That's not the fear of God. That's not what God does. Hey, you better worship me or you're going to get a flat tire. That's not what God does. The fear of the Lord is, Lord, you are God. You are amazing. You are powerful. I am in all of you. And that leads me to wanting to know you deeper and better because you are so amazing and big. and powerful. You, you know I'm a big astronomy guy, and I always love that verse in Psalms where it says, the heavens declare the majesty of God. And, and it's a beautiful time of the year to go out. You can see the Milky Way. There's four planets out you can see. You can see Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars all at the same time. And when you're standing out there and you see the Milky Way and you see Jupiter and Saturn and Venus and Mars, there's an awe of reverence of how big and powerful God is that leads you to what? Worship, to love, to respect Not trembling of fear, but I fear you, God, because of how powerful you are. One more example of this. Can you go with me to Exodus, please? Exodus 14. I want you to have a holy, all reverence, fear of God. So that way when it comes to making a decision, a financial decision, a life decision... You stop and you say, I have enough all reverence, fear of God to say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my money? You have a job decision. You have enough all reverence, fear of God to say, Lord, where do you want me to go? Because for me to make a choice on my own, that's foolish and that's fearful. To say, I have enough arrogance and pride to make a decision on my own? No. What's going on here in Exodus 14? Exodus 14, Israel has left now Egypt. And as they're escaping Egypt... 
Pharaoh changes his mind and says, I want my slaves back. So Pharaoh sends out the army to say, I'm going to bring you back. And they get to the Red Sea, and Israel kind of freaks out. What are we supposed to do? God says, part the Red Sea. Amazing miracle. So in faith, Moses parts the Red Sea. Israel walks through on dry land. And as Pharaoh's army comes tailing in behind them, the sea comes back over them and destroys them all. What an amazing miracle that would be to see. Exodus 14, verse 30. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Now, continue our point that fearing God takes you in a deeper love and respect for him, not scared, trembling. We saw Jonah, the sailors feared him and then worshipped him. They feared God so much when they saw the power of God that in Exodus 15, they sing a praise song. See, the fear led to love. The fear led to awe. The fear led to reverence. I would hope that you'd come in and hear worship and say, I fear God. That's why I want to praise him. Not because I have to. It's not that God's going to sit here and say, you didn't sing loud enough. You didn't clap on the right beat. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't judge you for not clapping on the right beat? You're not in tune. Your heart's not really there right. Yeah, you're mouthing the words. See, the problem is we come in, and I I mention this a lot, when we look at worship and we say something like this, oh, I really don't like the worship. What we're really saying is we don't like the music style because worship is good. God's good. Worship is you stopping and saying, I'm letting go of all that I'm thinking and feeling about me and my selfishness and me. That's why Hebrews calls it a sacrifice of praise. And I'm just going to think about God. You can worship on the way to your car by just stopping and saying, it's a beautiful day, Lord, thank you. You can worship while going outside. You can worship on your way to work. You don't need the musical styles of it. So often when we think of worship, we take it with music. Music is a great part of it. But worship is you and your heart towards the Lord, where you have an awe of reverence and a fear of God. So we have seen how the fear of God actually takes you deeper in Him. Now, two passages here, then we're done. Go with me to Psalm 34, please. One psalm about the fear of God, then one last example of an individual that had the fear of God. Psalm 34. I want you to, in our study of Proverbs, to have a deeper understanding of the awe, reverence, and fear of who God is that holds the very breath in your hands, that he is a consuming fire. He is God. And then when we understand that, Psalm 34 is a great psalm. It's not that long, only 22 verses. Very famous verse, verse 8, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Very famous verse. You see it on cards, you see it on shirts, you see it on bumper stickers, you have it up in your kitchen, you have it up in your house. Very famous verse. But look at verse 9. After I taste and see that the Lord is good and I'm blessed, verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. See, I taste and see the Lord is good, I'm blessed, and then verse 9, I fear him. That's the theme. I have an awe, a reverence, a respect for who God is. So therefore, it changes how I live and I act and and everything. I fear him. There is no want to those that fear him. Verse 10, the young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. When I fear God, I know and trust that he's going to provide for me. I'm not worried. Why? 
because I fear God. Proverbs 14, 26 says this, In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. When I fear God, I don't have to walk in fury and in worry, because what am I worried about? I go to the doctor, I get a diagnosis I don't want. I'm going to fear the diagnosis more than I fear God. I'm going to look at a checkbook and realize the money's not in there. I'm going to fear debt more than I fear God that has the cattle in a thousand hills. I'm going to go talk to somebody. And I'm worried about what that human being, if they're a male, dirt, if they're a woman, bone, thinks about me rather than what the creator of the universe thinks about me. When you fear God, it changes your every interaction. It changes your conversations. It changes your decisions because you really stop and look at a person and you say, hey, no disrespect towards you. But you didn't create me. You didn't die on the cross for my sins. And you're not giving me entrance into heaven. So I, I really can't walk in fear of you. I can't look at a situation on this earth that's temporal and say, you know, I probably should really be afraid of that. Because, no, I have an eternal God that I should be afraid of. All the reverence of that. So, I don't worry because I have strong confidence in the fear of the Lord. Verse 11, come you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Think about that, parents and grandparents. If you have any influence over the generation below you, what are you supposed to be teaching them? The fear of the Lord. See, we teach them Bible verses. We teach them that Jesus loves them. We teach them about heaven. We teach them all the stories about Daniel and David. We teach them all those things. But have we ever stopped and said, do you understand the fear of the Lord? That's what I want to teach you. Verse 12, who is the man who desires life and loves many days and that he may see good? See, the fear of the Lord leads to life. Proverbs 19.23 says this, The fear of the Lord leads to life. He who has it will abide in satisfaction. When I fear God, I'm satisfied. Is that just a fascinating concept? See, when I don't fear God, I walk in my own selfishness. I didn't get the raise I wanted. I didn't get the house I wanted. I didn't get the girl I wanted. I didn't get the ministry I wanted. And so what happens? I just walk in this, woe is me. My life isn't right. I'm miserable. That's no fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord says, Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without complaining. So I should probably not complain if not I'm messing with God. The fear of the Lord says that God has told me to be content in all things and that fearing him leads to satisfaction of life and long days. Now the problem is when you think of long days and satisfaction of life, we normally think of, well, I'm going to live to a very long time and I'm going to have everything I could ever desire. That's not what it means biblically. It means you're blessed in the days that you have. God's just with you. Because you got Ecclesiastes where the guy had long life and everything he could ever wanted and he did not have a blessed life. The fear of the Lord says, whatever state I'm in, this is the best state for me to be in. God, I trust you and I praise you and I love you and I thank you for that. What else does the fear of the Lord do? Verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as has a contrite spirit. When I fear God, verse 14, I don't want to sin. Depart from evil and do good. I want to seek peace and pursue it. Verse 13, I want to watch what I say. Because I'm accountable. The fear of the Lord, verse 15, says God sees everything I do. God hears everything I do. Verse 17, he hears the cry of the righteous. 
That changes what I watch. It changes what I do. It changes what I live and how I talk because I fear God. Proverbs 8.13 says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That way when evil comes into my life, I fear God enough to say, I don't want to be around that sin. The fear of the Lord says, I don't want to sin. Now, this doesn't mean I reach some sinless perfection, but it reaches a point where I stop and say, the pleasures of that sin pale in comparison to the fear of God. Because I don't want to fear the Lord. And the sense of, I don't want to just say it, I want to do it. Do we really mean this? Last example, and then we're done. Genesis 22, please. As you're going to Genesis 22, as we get ready to start our study in Proverbs here, it's not going to be typically like this, but that Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the foundation. Proverbs is practical, daily, godly living. Wisdom, knowing God's way of how to do it. And the key is fearing God. What you have here in Genesis 22 is Abraham getting ready to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Verse 1 of Genesis 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Please note, it was never God's intention for him to actually sacrifice Isaac. It was a test to Abraham. It was a test. What's going through Abraham's mind when he hears this? Abraham waited 100 years to have his promised son. What was going through his mind? Now we know from Hebrews that Abraham had such faith in God that he believed that even if Isaac would die, God would raise him from the dead, which is an amazing amount of faith. But at this time, we don't know for sure, but Isaac is a young man. So Abraham could be 120, 130, I've heard as late as 140 years old. Isaac maybe 20, 30, 40, we don't know. So here he is, and it's time. Verse 3, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. Verse 3, what do you think that Abraham's thinking as he's splitting the wood? This is the wood to burn my child. The promised child, the child that I waited literally a century for. Verse 4, that on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. If you want to further study, study out the symbolism of Abraham being God the Father, Isaac being the Son, Jesus. See all the symbolism there, the wood, the three days, etc. Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Note the faith in verse 5, we will come back to you. Please also note verse 5, worship. Stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship. Worship. There ain't no music in killing your kid. There is nothing like that. This is an act of worship. An act of I am placing my desires off to the side and I'm focusing on God and God alone. Let me stress again. It was never God's intention for Abraham to kill Isaac. This is a test to Abraham in verse 1. We know how the story ends. Abraham looks at it as worship. Guys, the next time you do family devotions, I want you to read verse 5. I will go yonder and worship. Then I would say, boys, let's go out in the backyard to see what they say. See if they put it together. What's going on here? Worship. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. Note the picture of Jesus in the cross. 
He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. What's going through Abraham's mind? The knife that will kill his child. The fire that will light it on fire to um, offer the sacrifice. Verse 7, finally, Isaac. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. They said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Abraham's faith, God will provide. Verse 9, they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there. Once again, what's going through his mind? Placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Please note in verse 9, binding Isaac. I don't want you to think that Abraham snuck up behind Isaac, knocked him out, gagged him, and tied him up. No. Isaac is a young man at this time. The 120, 130, 140-year-old Abraham is not going to be able to out-wrestle him. This is a willing sacrifice on Isaac's part as well, too. You may say, well, why is he bound? Because that's part of the way the sacrifices were done. Jesus was bound on the cross through the nails. Isaac is also willingly doing this. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. I mean, just think about what's going through this mind. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Stop right there for a second. Don't you think the relief in Abraham's mind, the relief in Isaac's mind, why was it stopped Verse 12, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to the lad, for now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The fear of God is you hold absolutely nothing back from the Lord. Every finance, every decision, every word, every action goes through the filter of the fear of the Lord. I'm not expecting you just to all of a sudden walk out of here today and say, oh, that's a great idea, I'm going to do that. This is a lifelong process lifelong process where you stop in every interaction you have and say, I fear God enough and I'm going to tell the truth even though a lie would get me out of this. I fear God enough to say, I'm not going to look at that image on that computer screen even though no one would ever know I did it because I fear God. I fear God enough to say that even though that person deserves a tongue lashing, the fear of God says I'm supposed to respond in gentleness and kindness. The fear of God stops and says, you know what, I could go waste my day doing X, Y, or Z, but you know what, I really want to fast and pray today. That's not a legalistic have to. That's not a forced. But it's an all reverence and respect for who God is that actually leads you to deeper love and deeper worship. Because you stop and you say, he's God and I'm not. And to fully understand our teaching in Proverbs here over the next couple months, it's going to be understanding the fear of God. Because if you don't fear God, why am I listening to this wisdom from this book? If I don't fear God, what difference does it make how I go out and live my life? What difference does practical, daily, godly living mean if I don't fear God? So fine, I've taught my kids the Bible verses. They know Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They're born again. They're saved. But do they fear God? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that's where we want to start. And when we see, when we hold nothing back like Abraham, God says, I want to use you. You fear me enough to be used. And yes, there is the crawl up on your father's knee. Go talk to your brother, talk to your friend. Understand the love, grace, and mercy of the Lord. But also understand the consuming fire of the fear of God. And that's what I want us to know deeper as we go through this study. Worship team, if you'd come forward here, please.